And thanks again to Jimmy and your family for being here today. Um, and for Molly, uh, yeah, just sharing her artwork with us. Um, you know, it's, it's providential that this is all taking place today on this first Sunday of Eastertide, where we're, again, we're celebrating the ongoing ramifications or, or effects of the risen Savior. What a picture of new life, of life uh, coming and teeming uh, this time of year. Um, I don't know about your yard, but mine is exploding with pinks, whites, yellows. My trees um, are like just budding with the most beautiful, vibrant greens. Um, But there's this one tree in my yard. Um, I think I have a picture, yeah. That by all appearances did not survive the winter. Um, You know, the other day I took this picture because... I was like, am I going to have to get rid of this tree? It's super sad. I'm going to have to use Alan Verm's uh, chainsaw on this one, maybe. Uh, he's let me borrow his chainsaw. And uh, I was thinking I might have to, to cut it down until I got a little closer. Um, and then when I got a little closer, I started to see that there was, in fact, and there is, in fact, life. Tiny shoots of green. They were there all along. just had to get closer. Uh, in America, you know, Easter coincides right with this spring, this season where winter is giving way to spring, right? Where death is giving way to life. But perhaps your uh, inner life, perhaps your home life, is much more like a perpetual winter lately. And maybe last week was good, but the effects of of that day of celebrating the resurrection has long worn off. And by the way, I can resonate with that. Look, life has been hard. I don't have to remind you of that. Our world is chaotic. Families and lives can be ripped apart. But what if we're not looking closely enough? What if there is life yet? What if there are signs of life? Signs that he Jesus is indeed alive today. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look closely at a story from Acts chapter 1. And here we see, shining like the dawn, that the resurrected Jesus is alive. And that he's, he has left us with three things before he ascended. And we're going to look at the proof that he left us, the promise, and the power proof, the promise, and the power. Uh, With that, I wonder if you might stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Let's pray once more. Uh, Father, we need your spirit today, just like every other Sunday. For without your spirit, we will labor in vain. I will preach in vain. We will worship in vain. But Lord, because you are alive and because you sent the spirit, we do not worship in vain. I do not preach in vain. As weak and as flawed as I am, Lord, I represent you and your perfect, incredible good news. And so use me in the hearts of every person this morning, even my own. I need you. I need these words. I need the resurrection. We all do. And so help it to come to life in us, we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The proof that he gives us. Let me ask you a question. I like to start with questions, you know that. What is the greatest sequel of all time? Think about that. The greatest sequel Right. And I want to hear from the kids and the, the students in the back, people in the balcony. If, you, if, you have, if you're passionate about the sequel, you let me know. I want to hear it. Greatest sequel. Which one? So Two Towers? Hey. Okay. Sequel. Yeah, two. So. Hey, I, that was in my list too, so great. Home Alone 2. Yes. Hey, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's up there. Top five, maybe. All right. Back to the Future 2. I like one and three a little bit more, but hey, to each his own. Empire Strikes Back. Oh. Wow. Kindred Spirits, Colin. I like it. All right, one more. Avatar 2. Avatar 2. Wow. Okay. Um. I'm here to report that neither The Empire Strikes Back, which is up high on my list, and The Two Towers, which was number two for me, they're actually not the greatest. Um, The book of Acts, which is the sequel to the book of Luke, is actually the greatest sequel of all time. Pastor joke. Okay. (laughs) I was trying to think, how how can I get into the the reality that there's two? They're like a series. All right. We know it's a sequel because of how he begins Acts 1. Let's read again. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's a basic summary of the gospel of Luke. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay? So it follows that his sequel, Acts, is what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his resurrection and ascension. Okay, so if you want to summarize Luke and Acts, it's what he began to do, that's the gospel, and what he continued to do is Acts, through the power of the Spirit. 
Okay. Luke begins both books by addressing this person named Theophilus. You may have noticed that. Uh, scholars don't know who this person was, but we do know from Luke's gospel that he gives him the term excellent Theophilus, which in that day and age meant that he was a person of some social standing, so he was probably pretty wealthy. But we see in verse 3 that Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples after his suffering on the cross by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. And so Luke's intention here is to convince Theophilus that Jesus did what he said he did, preached what he said he preached, and came back to life after he suffered on the cross. This word proof means a convincing sign, a compelling evidence. And it's actually found only here in the New Testament. It was used primarily in Greek historical works, historiography, to convey a sense of proof beyond doubt. So again, Luke's intention of writing to this person is to convey a sense of, of proof beyond doubt that Jesus is alive. He could not have used a stronger word for proof. You know, in our, in our age of skepticism, right, we, you know, this is a very normal question or a very normal statement we hear. You know, if Jesus is alive today, prove it. Prove it to me. Um, as Patrick told us last week, you know, um, we pastors, nobody in this room, no one in the world can actually prove to you in a laboratory or something that Easter happened. But I want you to notice that Jesus anticipated skepticism and doubt in his followers. He anticipated skepticism and doubt if that's you today. Why? Because he provided proof for his followers. For 40 days, he showed up and said, hey, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm with you. However, the proof for Jesus' resurrection is unlike the kind of proof we know in empirical science. Again, can't prove it in a lab. There's no Snopes article online. However, that's not to say that we have to believe this blindly. Let me ask you, why do you believe that the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776. Why do you believe that? Have any, has anybody ever been up to the Capitol and seen the, I mean, the declaration up there? I think it's in the Capitol. It is, right? Right? Archives. Just, just testing you. <laughs> testing your, your knowledge. I knew that. <laughs> so why do you believe that it was signed on July 4th? We believe that because, as an historical event, it is subject to an evaluation of evidence that was presented by people who were there, people who saw it happen. And proof for the resurrection of Jesus works the same way. People who were there, people who saw it happen, eyewitness testimony. Look at, look at how Luke begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. 
So eyewitnesses told these stories of Jesus' ministry to Luke, uh, told him of Jesus' death, told him about Jesus' resurrection and his appearances and his ascension, and he wrote them down for Theophilus so that he could rest assured that they did indeed happen. And now these proofs during these 40 days of his appearances involve lots of very interesting things and episodes, right? Um, Staying with them, eating meals, eating breakfast, cooking breakfast on the beach for Peter. I love that story in John. He showed up behind locked doors and scared the living daylights out of the disciples. I love that one too. And it also involved the risen Christ coming up to one of his very skeptical followers and showing him his scars and saying, believe in me. Believe in me. And we know by accounts that he did indeed believe and that Thomas would become a wonderful missionary all the way in India, most likely, who would then eventually be and ultimately be martyred for his faith. So these are the kinds of proofs that Jesus provided his people, his followers, and Luke wrote them down so that Theophilus and Theophilus's after him, like us, could rest assured that these events did indeed happen. And this is why the New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright can say this, the combination of an empty tomb and appearances of the living Jesus forms a set of circumstances which is itself both necessary and sufficient for the rise of early Christian belief. Without these phenomena, the empty tomb, the appearances, we cannot explain why this belief came into existence and took the shape that it did. With them, we can explain it exactly and precisely. So the church exploded because Jesus showed up in their lives. The risen Christ, they encountered him. But incredibly, Jesus did more than give us eyewitness testimony so that we can be signs that he is indeed alive. He gives us a promise too. Let's look at that next. Starting in verse 4. And while staying with them, and this is just an aside, but that word staying can also mean eating with them. I, just, I love that. So Jesus was feasting with them, just like we do. We like to eat. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So again, during those 40 days, Jesus stayed with, he ate with, he taught, he commissioned, and he prepared them for the promise of the Father, namely the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what's that all about? What's this baptism of the Spirit? What is this promise of the Father that Jesus is referring to? Um, Jesus calling the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father connects what happens at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with a promise that was made to a person named Abraham all the way back in Genesis. In other words, what Jesus is doing is connecting himself and his people, his followers, to the promises made to Abraham himself. In other words, he's showing us that he is the fulfillment of the Jewish story and we get to continue on in the promises that were made to the Jewish people all those years ago. God promised Abraham in Genesis 22 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his family. 
who would have ultimately become the people of Israel, right? And then Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 3 this passage, and he says that Abraham's offspring is ultimately Jesus. And he, I'm going to connect it, I promise. And a little later he says that through faith in Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, we become inheritors of the promise made to Abraham. What was that promise? That all the nations of the earth would be blessed through your family. We become part of that. The church, through faith in Christ, we become heirs according to those promises made to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through us, the church. We become part of a new family, a new story. Um, my mom was adopted when she was a baby. She was about six weeks old. She was adopted. And up until a few years ago, she thought that her biological parents were German. And so we grew up, us kids, saying, hey, we're half Greek. Kerhulas, it's Greek, just if you, in case you didn't know. <laughs> we're half Greek, but we're half German. My mom was adamant that we shared that second part. And uh, it wasn't up until, or it was up until a couple years ago when my sister had the great idea of giving, you know, for Christmas, a DNA test so she could learn more about her background. And she comes to find out that she's not German at all. <laughs> she's Scandinavian. The blue eyes, I don't know. I've got my mom's blue eyes. So for her to be associated with an entirely new culture has been very exciting, very disorienting, of course. For a while, there were a lot of tears, but now she's been kind of, she's learning more, and she's excited. And not only that, she's been in contact with her biological family that she didn't know existed until two years ago. And a few months back, she sent me pictures of um, her biological mother, uncanny how much she looks like her mom and how much I look like her because <laughs> I look just like my mom. So it was really strange for me, really amazing. This is what happens when we're united to Christ by faith, an entirely new story, an entirely new family is ours. We're part of the story of redemption the story that God has been writing from Genesis to today. We become part of that. We become actors in that story. It's amazing. So if your life resembles that dead tree in my yard, you're not alone. My heart can often feel frozen in perpetual winter. But remember, I had to get closer to see that life was there all along. We, I had to get closer to see that death was giving way to life. And this is the power of the Spirit. It's not just that you're in a new family. You are. It's not just that you're in a new story. You are. But you have new power through the Holy Spirit. And that's my final point. In order to become signs of life in the world for Him, we need a power that only comes from Him. So Jesus tells us that his first disciples would receive power in Judea, in, Ju in Jerusalem, ultimately. 
in order to be witnesses where? In Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, which is kind of the outline of, of Acts, which is really interesting. Several chapters are about Jerusalem, and then it moves on to Judea and Samaria. It's just, so that's a very awesome way that Luke has kind of summarized the book of Acts. That's a tidbit for you. But they had to wait until they were clothed with power, baptized in the power of the Spirit, tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. Interestingly, though, um, Luke's gospel records the ascension and, and the promise of the Spirit um, that when they returned to Jerusalem, they were worshiping and they were rejoicing. So their master had just left them, just left for heaven, and they're worshiping and they're rejoicing. Why? Why would you rejoice? Why would you worship after your best friend, your master, your teacher had left? Uh, to borrow an illustration, uh, when Queen Elizabeth ascended the British throne some 140 years ago, <laughs> actually half that, isn't that amazing? Half, 70 years ago. Um, when she did that, her relationship with other British citizens uh, changed forever, right? She, uh, you know, in theory, in Buckingham Palace, if you somehow got past the guards or you knew somebody that worked there, you could, in theory, ascend the throne. You could get up there and sit down. I wonder what it would feel like. Probably like any other chair, just more expensive, right? We would ascend slightly in elevation, but not in authority. But when Elizabeth climbed and ascended onto that throne, she ascended to become the sovereign ruler of Great Britain. In our text, the word heaven is used three times, kind of on rapid fire, of where Jesus ascended. There's another word that Luke could have used called the heavens, plural, and that means, you know, the sky. It means the stars. It's spatial language. But the word heaven always means God's space, where God dwells. It's not up there somewhere. It's an entirely different dimension. And that's where Jesus went. And what does this mean? When Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he became the sovereign ruler over the universe. That's what it means. And how does that shake out for us? What does this cosmic power enable him to do? It enables him to be with you when you are walking your spouse to death's door. It enables him to be near you when you're battling for your life against a disease. It enables him to be right next to you when your marriage is in shambles. It enables him to be in you when you're giving up hope. That is why they returned rejoicing and worshiping because they knew what it meant for them that this God 
was no longer bound by space and time like you and I. He was now and is now sovereignly ruling over the entire cosmos. That's why they could rejoice. That's why we should rejoice. That's why we worship, just like the followers of old. Because of what it means for him that this person, like you and I, with scars, is now on the throne. What does it mean? At least one thing. It doesn't just mean that he is with us. It does. But it means that someone who can sympathize with our weakness, as the writer of Hebrews says, is in heaven, reigning with us. What does that entail? We belong there too. Why? We got scars. Someone with scars is in heaven, ruling and reigning. That means that those of us, all of us, belong there too. And by faith, Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator. God's space and ours, he bridges the gap forever. My brother and I, we worked in a, a church in Boston for five years. We overlapped for five years. It was so much fun. And my younger brother, too, um, worked there for two. So we had two years where three brothers were working in the same church. Wild. Shenanigans. Too much. But it was awesome. Um, but then God called him away. And, um, you know, it was a really sad goodbye party. You know, super excited for them. Uh, God had called him to plant a church in San Diego. I know, tough life. Um, while it was really sad, it was actually really good for both of us. Didn't know it at the time, but it helped me to become who God destined me to be as a pastor, and it helped him to become who God destined him to be, to plant a church, to sp spread the gospel with surfers and whoever else lives in San Diego. <laughs> Just before he was betrayed, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in John 15, he says, But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus ascended so he could be, take his rightful throne and so that the Holy Spirit could descend upon us so that we could be witnesses, signs of his life in the world. The witness comes to bear witness in our hearts that Jesus is alive so that we can do the same in a world that's been torn apart by sin, by death. This is why he left. So we could have him dwelling in us all till the end of the age. Before we close, I wanted to show one example, just one example of what res resurrection life can look like and one of his followers in 2022. I want to show you uh, just a short video of a, 
of a pastor in Kiev who decided to stay in the war zone for the sake of others. Let's watch this together. Friends, you're asking me, Pastor Sergei, what lesson have you learned during these days of war? And I would express this only by one powerful and precious word. Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with me here and now. And please listen carefully the following that is just flowing from my heart that is so deeply enrooted in my heart right now. If he died for us, can he leave us right now? If he suffered for us, can he leave us in our sufferings? If he prayed for us with real human tears, can't he cry now with us with real human tears? And this is so precious, so important, so supernaturally important for me and for millions of Christians here in Ukraine. Jesus is with me here and now and forever. And this is supernatural presence in my life here and now. Powerful. Jesus suffered. He died. He was buried. He rose. He ascended. He sent the Spirit for one reason. To put to death the lie that when you suffer for His sake, He has abandoned you. This pastor in Kiev Bombs are dropping. And what does he say? Emmanuel. God is with us. So whatever you're going through, and many of you are going through the hardest time in your life, he has not left you. He's not left you. And he never will. And that's why he sent the Spirit. That's why we are his people. We are his signs of life in a world that is desperate for it. We need only ask our Father and he will give us the spirit to do the impossible, to love the broken, to love the political other, 
to love the hurting, to go through adversity, sharing him in word and deed. Yes, we have the Spirit and we have each other. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for planning all of this from ages past, from eternity past. Thank you for sending your Son to live the life we never could, to die the death that we should have died, and to rise victorious over the sin that ensnares us and the death that haunts us. Lord, you are the King. You sit on that throne as one of us. You did not shed your humanity. You, you wear it always, reminding us that you understand and yet we belong with you. And Spirit, we worship you. You live in each of us. You reside no matter what. I pray that we would because of you, because you bear witness to Christ, that we would do the same. Help us, Lord. Emmanuel, come and be with us now as we receive the sacrament together. In Christ's name, amen.